Again, thank you so much, worship team, and welcome again. Welcome to um, a teaching series we're calling Remember When, which I'm going to explain more about in just a minute. If you're listening online, uh, thank you for listening online. If you're here with us, great to have you here. Um, how many of you all have ever heard of the advice, choose your battles wisely? You ever hear that? Or, um, you know, choose which hills you're going to die on? I remember hearing that from one of my mentors when I first took on uh, the pastorate here at Grace Point Church almost, almost 15 years ago now. They said, hey, just decide what hills you're going to die on. It's great advice, isn't it? Because everybody knows that everybody faces battles, right? Some of you know that I have a, the opportunity to coach uh, U12 Boys World Championship Soccer every week, okay? And it's an incredible opportunity. I've been doing that for years as the boys have grown up. And uh, this is not an unusual occurrence to have boys who are, who are young, you know, 10, 11, 12, um, growing up, taking some of their energy and excitement out on each other in ways that aren't healthy, right? And even recently here, we had a boy who came running off the field uh, and was worked up because someone else had called him a name on the field. And I happened to hear the exchange and it wasn't a very nice name, and it wasn't an appropriate thing, and, and he yelled back to him something that wasn't appropriate either, and we had a little moment. We had a little moment on the field with two guys who were trying to figure out how to grow up and how to handle the anger and excitement and you know, challenge and competitiveness in each of their hearts, and, and in that moment, they had to pick their battles. Like, is this worth fighting about? Is this why we're here? Is this the battle that we've come to, to do? Like, is this it? Everyone has their battles to, to fight, right? Everyone does, and you have your own, and you've had your own. Some of you are fighting parenting battles right now. Like, is it worth it? Is it worth it with these kids to do this and to push here? And how about the line here? And oh boy, the third one down the line, they can do this because we're so tired of holding a line with the first two or three or eight or ten that you have, however many you happen to have. Some of you are fighting battles at work, right? I mean, seriously, you know, boy, I don't know how much longer I can take this with my boss or with my coworker. Like, they are driving me crazy with the music they play or with the demands they have or with the strange unmet or unclarified expectations that they have or we're just with in-laws right with with family or maybe with a roommate just things aren't working right we all have battles that we face some of the toughest battles are the battles we face when we look in the mirror about who we are and and what is being shaped in us what do we see when we look in the mirror? What, what, what is speaking back to us? And what's coming back right into our heart and soul? Those are some of the toughest battles to face. And here's what we know about battles. That sometimes sometimes there's, there's right and wrong battles to fight. And we know that, right? And the reason we know that is because this is the world of regrets for each of us. If anyone has ever been in high school and graduated from high school, you know that there are right and wrong battles. In fact, if you're several years removed from high school, think back to some of the battles you fought in high school. Let me ask you, would you fight them again today? And this, this proves the point that, yes, there are right and wrong battles to fight. My sister and I were playing um, badminton many years ago, as if we play badminton often. We never play badminton. But we were at my, uh, my in-laws uh, or my uh, extended families in Connecticut, and she got angry with me, and she turned the badminton racket sideways and bashed me over the head with the frame of the badminton racket. Wrong battle to fight, okay? I'm just telling you, there's right and wrong battles to fight. She took out her anger on me in a way that wasn't very healthy. And I piled, drove her into the ground. No, I didn't do that. But I, I think I ran away crying, truthfully, is what I did, rather than, than fight back. There's right and wrong battles to fight. Now, here's, here's the thing about that. If there are right and wrong battles to fight, and if sometimes we choose the wrong battles to fight, then every moment that we give to fighting the wrong battle is energy wasted, right? 
is momentum lost, is time lost that we will never get back again. Every moment that we give to fighting a wrong battle is energy that could and should be used to fighting the right battle, but isn't. It's like the football player who's running sideline to sideline and he's evading tacklers and he's tired and exhausted and he made some pretty sweet moves to continue to be open and be able to run, but he has not advanced the ball up the field. But he sure looked good going nowhere. And that can be what it's like when we're facing and fighting the wrong battles. And here's what I don't ever want for us. I don't want for us to walk through life and come to the end of a battle or a season that we're in and realize, you know what, I just spent a lot of energy on something that doesn't matter at all. And man, I was deceived into thinking that I should have fought this battle and I really shouldn't have. And in our story in the book of Nehemiah, where we're going to land in just a moment, Nehemiah faces two battles And he faces them so well that it helps bring clarity for you and for me on two misconceptions that will often lead us to fight the wrong battles. Two misconceptions that we have about life that often deceive us into using our energy to fight things that we really shouldn't fight to give our energy to battles that we shouldn't be fighting. Because as you grow older, you know, and so do I, that it becomes harder to know what is the right and what is the wrong battle to fight. It becomes harder to know where to go and what to do at times. And so the book of Nehemiah is an incredible gift to us, and I hope will be a gift to us this morning to clarify some misconceptions, two misconceptions that sometimes will deceive us into fighting the wrong battles. And I want to get into that story with you because it's a great story. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, um, Nehemiah chapter 6. If you don't own a Bible, that's no problem. There's a Bible in the pew around you. We'd love to give that uh, Bible to you as our gift to you. The easiest way to find Nehemiah is go to the middle of uh, your Bible in the Psalms, and Nehemiah is a neighbor to the book of Psalms. You'll find Nehemiah hanging out near the book of Psalms. Um, Nehemiah chapter 6. Now you should know this. Um, we are now seven, uh, seven parts into the series. This is the seventh one, and this is an ongoing story. And many of you know the story of Nehemiah. Some may not. The real quick story is Nehemiah built a wall. How about that? That's the real quick story. Built a wall around Jerusalem and had the, the Israelites build that wall during the time of reconvening as a nation uh, of Israel. They were kind of getting back together again. And we are now in the part in the story where uh, last week and kind of where we left off the story last week was that Nehemiah dealt with some internal opposition. People were fighting amongst themselves and weren't being treated fairly. And we talked about how it's easy to be careless with the closest people to us. And we can often not treat people well who are closest to us as we just don't even think carefully the way we should about them, don't love them well. It's easy to be careless with the closest. And we saw that in chapter 5. Chapter 6 now. The the wall building is back to full strength. Nehemiah has dealt with opposition out there, opposition in here internally, and now, man, it's all hands on deck. And the people, uh, dozens and dozens, hundreds of them are rebuilding the wall and lifting it back up to its former glory. And that creates a problem for the people around them who are seeing this happen and want to put it to a stop. They do not want to see the nation of Israel restored to strength. So Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to be reading a few verses of this thing as we go this morning. Reading from the New International Version, NIV. 
when word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates. So in other words, the wall is built, but we hadn't framed up the the gates yet. So anyone could come in or go out, not yet secure. So verse 2, Sanballat and Geshem sent me this message. Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. But they were scheming to harm me. Okay, now, here's the first sign that Sanballat and Geshem were up to no good and also weren't that smart. You don't invite someone to the valley of Ono, right, if you want to meet with them. I mean, this, that's just a dumb idea. So Ono is actually located about 27 miles from Jerusalem. Now, to us, that's a small hop, skip, and a jump in a car. But seriously, think about this in the mode of transport they had in that time. We're talking about a couple of days' journey to get over there, 27 miles. So think of our world today. If someone were to ask you while you're in the middle of a project, do you mind flying around the world, the other side of the world, and then getting in some vehicle through the backcountry roads and give me a two-day journey to go have a meeting with me while you're in the middle of a big project? What do you think they're trying to do? Help you? get your job done. So four times, Sanballat sends this message. Hey, why don't we come meet in the Valley of Ono? Why don't we come meet in the Valley of Ono? And so Nehemiah responds in verse 3. So I sent messengers to them with this reply. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave and go down with you? Four times they sent me the same message, and each time I gave them the same answer. Think about that. Four times. Hey, come meet. Nope, doing a project. Come meet an Ono. Nope, doing a project. Come meet. Nope, come meet. No. Like, how many times do you need to be doing this? Finally, Sanballat, not deterred, comes up with a new plan. And his new plan, the fifth time around, his new plan taps into a fear that we all have and taps into something that he hopes will get Nehemiah's attention and change his reaction to him. He taps into something deep within all of us that we can relate to. Look at what he does in verse 5. And then the fifth time, Sanballat sent his aid to me with the same message, and in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it is true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. Therefore, you are building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become their king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now, this report will get back to the king, so come, let us confer together. Isn't that nice of him? I'm afraid that your future is going to be in trouble, so why don't we come talk about that? And here's the fear that Sanballat taps into. He taps into the fear of what will other people think about me. He taps into the fear of public opinion. He sends him an unsealed letter, which not only might be read, but he expects to be read to everybody along the way, to every city, to every town, from Ono to Jerusalem, 27 miles, all the villages. An unsealed letter means there is no security to this, and we sure hope, and it will be read. By everybody, and I want to spread the gossip. I want to spread this mis- mis- misconception. I want to sway public opinion with this quote unquote report. And look at the report. And this is the way, by the way, critics like this work. They'll take 
quote-unquote facts and twist them cowardly and manipulate them to tell their story. It is reported among the nations, verse 6. Look at what he writes again. Report among nations. What nations? What report? You just made this up. It's reported among the nations. And Gisham says it's true. <laughs> okay. That who's getting I mean, what does that matter? Okay. That you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. That's why you're building a wall. Moreover, according to these reports, which I just made up, you are about to become their king. And eat, and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. Made that part up too. There's a king in Judah. Now, this report, which I all made up, we'll get back to the king. Now, look how dumb this is. Think about this. If, if this is true, if these reports are actually true, and you are Sanballat, and you are wise, why in the world would you want to, to confer with someone who's planning to revolt against the most powerful king at the time? Are you kidding me? This is just stupid. Like, if that country, if that nation, those people are going to revolt, I'm not going to go over there and confer with them. I'm going to say, hey, king, you got a revolt on your hands. I'm not going to go over because if I meet with them, what do you think the king's going to think about me? We're both revolting. This is foolishness. No, you don't care about this. You're making this up along the way, and Sanballat taps into, and he wants to twist public opinion. He wants to twist this and create this response within Nehemiah where he would say, boy, ah, if everybody thinks this is true, I'm going to, need to do something about this. He's trying to tap into this. And here's the first misconception that we have that can make us fight the wrong battles. This is the misconception that preserving my reputation is worth fighting for. This is a misconception about life. That my reputation, that's just being drugged through the mud on every town, every village along the way from Ono out here to Jerusalem, is worth fighting for because you've just told everybody that I'm doing this, that I'm going to be king and I'm setting up prophets and everyone is believing this. And Boy, and this is exactly what Sanballat wants Nehemiah to react to. When news about you is false, when people speak lies about you, when they manipulate the truth, when you know that your reputation is being muddied or sullied, he wants a reaction. And here's what I would say. This is a misconception. This is not a battle worth fighting. Here's what I would say. Instead of this, instead of fighting for your reputation, here's where this comes into play. If you're in high school, if you're in middle school, if you're a young adult, even if you're not, even if you're a grown adult, isn't this the way the world works? Like We, we dress in, in a way to be accepted by the people around us. We'll speak in a way to do that. We will try to live in such a way so that the people around us will not think ill of us and not think ill of our reputation. Is this not how this works? Is this not how social groups work? That we do not want people to think ill of us. We want the people around us in public opinion to think highly of us. We will not do, take any steps of embarrassment because we don't want to step out of a group that will otherwise look at us and think, man, what's wrong with them? Like their reputation must be off. And there's this fear underneath all of us of like, what will people think? What will people think about me? And we can spend time, and you know people who do this, they do this, by the way, on social media in a hurry. Someone says something about them, or they're afraid that someone else will think this way, or someone will think this way, or someone over there who I don't even know will think this way. And oh, by the way, I just want to raise my hand and tell you that, hey, do you know, everybody thinks this way. Yeah, who's everybody? Me and my mom. That's everybody. We all think this way. And then we spend our time chasing down Things that aren't worth chasing down. Why? Because underneath this, for all of us, is this fear of, I might be losing my reputation. 
And that's what Sanballat appeals to. Like, Nehemiah, your reputation is going, my friend. Look at what we all think. Like me and Geshem who wrote this letter. That's all of us. And he wants us to react to that. And instead of, instead of living our lives and fighting the battles with our reputation in mind, I want you to consider this. Instead of preserving my reputation, preserving my character is worth fighting for. And those are worlds different. This isn't about our reputation, and life is never going to be about our reputation. We can't control that. Who cares what the people think who read this letter? I can't control that. What I can control is my reputation. I can't control how I react when you say the things about me that aren't true. I can control how I react when you're on the soccer field with me and you call me a name. I can control what comes back. And even if that name you call me, everyone else laughs at and begins to think the same way about me because you just called me that name, which was happening this week. Listen, let me tell you, your character, my friend, your character, as I was talking to this little boy, your character is all that you can control. Your reaction is what you can control. Right? We, we know this when coaching people, but we forget it when we are attacked. And I just want to encourage you, do not spend your life and do not spend your time chasing down the opinions of other people and chasing down the battle of what will people think about me when? What will people think if? Preserving your character is worth a battle, not preserving your reputation. And those are worlds different. Nehemiah faces this beautifully because he just gives Sanballat the stiff arm on this one pretty hard. Look what he says as the text continues here. He goes on to him and he says in verse 8, I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your head. Boom. Stiff arm and I'm going to continue running. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I pray, now strengthen my hands. And so he's saying, listen, there is uh, opposition coming. There's people who don't like what we're doing. There's people who speak badly of it. They don't like that I'm friends with these people, right? Like, you ever be in a a friend group where some people are like, I'm not going to talk to you if you talk to them. You ever have that experience? How foolish is that, right? I mean, how ridiculous is that, that we ever operate like that? But yet we've all seen that juvenile behavior, that really childish behavior being like, unless you line up with me, I'm not going to be friends with you. Then don't be friends with me. That's going to be on you. That's that's not on me. We spend our time chasing down these things. And Nehemiah just gives out this stiff arm. He says, I don't care about public opinion. Listen, I have a great project to do. I've got a great project to do. We're going to get this thing done. He said, now God, strengthen my hands because we need to move forward now. That is the opening, and Nehemiah continues to, to build the wall, and Sinbad's like, five times I tried that, it's not going to work, I'm going to try one more thing. And so later on, we don't know how much time passes between verse 9 and verse 10, but look what happens next. What happens next in the text, one day, I, Nehemiah, went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehatabel, all right, got all that, who was shut in at his home, and he said, let us meet in the house of God inside the temple and let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night they are coming to kill you. Now, is there any greater fear than the fear of losing your own life? Is there any greater fear than that instinctive fear of dying in the moment? We have a teenage driver in our house. I feel that fear. On a regular basis. Just kidding, mostly. That primal urge 
to scream when you think you're careening off a cliff, right? I mean, you're just not going to sit there and be like, I'm fine with that mailbox coming in the window right at me. I'm not going to say anything. It's going to sit here. No. I mean, there's something in you that's like, oh, like, because it's a primal urge to save our own lives. And so now Shemaiah is appealing to this for Nehemiah. And in fact, we're going to see in a minute that he's actually being paid by Sanballat as a spy or man within the ranks to get Nehemiah to react to this great fear of my life might be lost and there are people coming for me. Here's the second misconception. First misconception is about fighting a battle about your reputation. That is what other people think about you. The second misconception is this, and that is that preserving my life is worth fighting for. This is a harder one. It's a harder one for me even to write and put up here. It's a harder one for us to get around, but I'm going to try to convince you why I think this is true and why I think this is so important, that this is indeed a misconception. There's a misconception that will drive you and drive me unless I stop to think about it and raise it up to my conscious level and say, I think this is wrong. This is not a battle worth fighting. The fighting for my life, I believe, is not worth fighting for. Not in this way. Yes, I don't want you to play in traffic. I don't want you to stick your face on the burner of the stove or whatever. Like, I don't want you to die. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that underneath that, all right, underneath this, for all of us, there's this pull to safety. There's this pull to convenience. There's this pull to comfort. There's this pull to a life that's easier. And a life that doesn't have risk or danger to me. And I'm just saying that as I look along the scope of even the trajectory of my life, that there may come a time at the end of my days where I will look back and I say, you know what? My life was comfortable. My life was preserved. My life was protected. And you know what I have to show for my life now? Just my life. It doesn't doesn't bear the weight of my soul. Like, I I want more than that. I'm going to die someday anyway, right? Like... There needs to be more than comfort and ease and protection that guides my choices. And isn't this what Jesus called us to as well? Wasn't his life like this? Where he calls his followers to a kind of commitment to him that's crazy. I'll show you what he said in a minute. But here's Sanballat saying, you know what, I want more than this. I want you, Nehemiah, to, 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 to be afraid your life. And instead of, I want to tell you this, instead of (laughs) preserving my life is worth fighting for, I want to encourage you to think this way. Preserving the mission is worth fighting for. Preserving the mission, not my life, is worth fighting for. That there is something about mission and purpose and clarity around who we are and what we do that actually is worth fighting for. Because look at Nehemiah's response in verse 11. He says, when the the potential of fear is coming down for him about you might be, be killed, and what Shemaiah does, sorry, let me jump in 11 in a minute. What Shammai is telling him to do is to come into the temple, to come into a room in the temple, a place in the temple where he's not allowed to go because he's not a priest. And just come hide there and you will be safe. And like, this will be the best thing for you. And Nehemiah's like, uh, no, look at verse 11. I said, should a man like me run away? Or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this, and then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, because of what they had done. Remember also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who had been trying to intimidate me. Nehemiah realizes 
there is more to life than my life. And this is what I said about Jesus. Like Jesus calls Christians to the same thing. If you are, if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you call yourself a Christian, Jesus lays it out hard in the Gospel of Luke. And here's what he says. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, teachers of the law, and be killed on the third day, be raised to life. And then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Okay, I don't quite know what that means, Jesus, but I think that's kind of a high-level bar there that you're setting. And then he continues and he says this. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the comfort, security, safety, peace of the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self in the process? What good is it to do that? Because our life is not a battle worth fighting for, not according to Nehemiah. See, Nehemiah looks at the fear of someone might kill me, <laughs> then they're going to kill me. But I have a project to do. Like, I have, a, I have a mission here in front of me, and you're telling me someone's going to come take my life? Then they're going to take my life. But the mission must go on, no matter what. And his character drives that in him, and he gets the job done. But if he's afraid of, what, what will happen to me if? What will happen to me if? You know it as well as I do. The work will not get done. And I think there's something underneath. I feel like we need this reminder consistently. And if you're a mom, I think this may be more difficult for you if you're a mom. If you're a dad, maybe it's difficult for you too, but maybe not quite as much. But how do we raise children? And how do we release them as parents to go into the world in which we try to protect them from ever getting run over, ever sticking their finger in the outlet, right? I mean, ever burning anything or like falling over and scraping anything. We try to protect and preserve and care and love and then say, yep, the most important thing isn't the future of your physical health, but the mission of the church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. In which somebody, somebody needs to go tell people who have never heard about Jesus. Somebody needs to go into countries that are quote-unquote closed. Somebody needs to get to people who are in dangerous situations. And somebody needs to put their life on the line. And the somebodies are Christians who have done that over and over and over and over and over again through the history of the Christian church. Somebody's kids need to do that. Somebody's parents need to do that. The people who realize that their life isn't the only thing worth preserving, that is not a battle worth your life, preserving your own life. This is the character of the Christian church, and it is a character of a leader like Nehemiah who says, you want to come take my life? Take my life. There's a job I have to do. The mission of the church mission of the wall, the mission of Jesus Christ must go on. It is a challenging reality when you allow it to settle in. But I don't want us ever, ever, ever to get away from that. Because if we get away from that, listen to me, look here, listen to me. If we get away from that, we settle into a pathetic, middling Christianity that does nothing for us. Does nothing for us. It's lukewarm. Lose that edge of what Jesus came to die for. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Because at the end of my life, living just for my life will not be a fight that will have been a good fight to fight. So, with all this being said, what can we say? I want to encourage you to think about this in two ways. I want to finish up and we'll, we'll get you out of here in a second. Right? Think about it this way. Number one, don't fight for your life. 
but fight for the lives of others. Don't fight for your life, but fight for the lives of others. And so who is it around you? Who is it around you where you say, you know what? I need to give my life in service to them. Even as simple as what we heard here with the food pantry here this morning. Produce, giving your time, giving your energy, giving your life, the energy, the resources that you have for the lives of others. It's not worth fighting. Don't fight the battle for my life. Fight the battle for the lives of others. And this is what the gospel is all about. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, others. So the mission of the church is this. Don't fight for your life. It's not a battle worth fighting. We're fighting for the lives of others. And I'll also say this. Don't fight for your reputation. Fight for your character. Don't fight for your reputation. Fight for your character. Don't worry about what the critics will say of you, what the people on the other team scream at you when you run off the field, what names they're going to call you, what misconceptions they have, how you're going to be perceived. Please, please, please. Don't waste your energy running sideline to sideline to sideline to sideline fighting for your reputation. Fight for your character. How do I respond in this moment? How do I show the love of God even if the people around me still think I'm an idiot? How do I show my character and the the character of my Savior through this? Don't fight for your reputation, fight for your character. We like to say at GPC, in one of our core values, we have this phrase at the very beginning of them that we want to, to do this, live fearlessly. Live fearlessly. That is a big statement to make. We want to live without the fear. It's almost impossible to do, but where faith kicks in, this is more possible. Some of you have read Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. Many in our world have. If you ever read it or know anything about it, it begins with a few simple words at the very beginning. It's not about you. It's not about you. Why does he start a book on the purpose-driven life by saying, I'm sure you picked this book up so you can figure out how to be the better you. Let me help you be a better you by helping you realize it ain't about you. From the jump, it's not about you because it's about the mission, the purpose. Of how do I bring others to know the hope and the life of Jesus Christ? What do I how do I flesh out the hope of the gospel around me, the mission that I have, the community in which I live, and the workplace in which I am at? So Nehemiah stands before us and he says, you want to distract me with what people think? Stiff arm to that one. You're making it up, and I don't really care. I have a job. You want to take my life? You're not going to take my character. I have a job to do. The mission of the church matters. The mission of Jesus Christ matters. Let me encourage you. Live fearlessly. Raise fearless kids. Be fearless in your parenting and in your grandparenting. To know that at the end of the day, it's not about us preserving our lives, but about living for the lives of others. That others, all people at all times, can come to know who Jesus Christ is, who the character people who realize I'm following a man who called me to lose my life for him. Along this journey of life, it can get tiring to keep going. And next week we're going to see from the book of Nehemiah something that gave him life and rejuvenation and continue to renew him and the people of Israel with him. We welcome you back next week for that. Let's pray together. Our good God and Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us as a people never to get away, never to move from this part of the character of Christianity that is this 
has this edge to it, this edge of realizing that our very lives are not the most important thing in this world. That the character of people like Nehemiah, who put his own life on the line, would be the character of the church. Because it's been the character of our Savior, who put his life on the line, in fact, gave it up for others like us, that we may follow him. So I pray that we would not fight the battle of just preserving our lives, of pursuing all comforts, pursuing ease and pleasure, and not thinking outside of ourselves, lest we waste our lives running sideline to sideline and looking back at the end of our days, only having ourselves to look at. Father, I thank you for the gift of the Scriptures, the gift of seeing people like Nehemiah and how he gave the stiff arm to the critics, the people who wanted to make him think that he wasn't doing the right things. Give us courage and confidence to set aside the voice of the critic, to set aside public opinion, to set aside whatever that quote-unquote reputation is that we might have if we do, if we don't, to choose character and to remember that we follow a Savior who gave his life for us. So I pray that you'd give us courage that you give us confidence to remember that you are a strong, sovereign king who rules over all. And so we beg of you to renew in us that passion and fire to serve you with this abandon in our marriages, with our children, in our places of work, in our schools, and in our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name.